Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Delette as my guest. Stephen is the CEO and founder of Inopsis, a company providing mobile and modular side stream on-site solutions for the chemical and pharmaceutical industry. Water is everywhere in industrial processes, yet, as we've regularly addressed on this microphone, it can be a challenging good to deal with for industrial operators. And what do you do with a matter you don't really know how to handle once it is not useful to you anymore? Well, you dump it away. In some industrial verticals, it is very common to load wastewater in trucks and boats and send it to incineration. Why not, after all, if there is no alternative? The thing is, there are other options that are both cheaper, environmentally better and more interesting for an industrial's bottom line. I'll let Steven explain to you the ins and outs in a second. And if you're like me, you'll probably learn a new concept with DBFOM. But I won't spoil it. Right before we start, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, please share this episode with a couple of colleagues and friends. I can pause here if you want to let you some time to do it. Should I do that? <laughs> All right, are we done? Then I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Hello, Anton. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we have a fascinating topic today. I have to say, in about 70 episodes, I think we didn't cover that one really in-depth. We've been talking about zero liquid discharge. We've been discussing about trying to reuse a bit more, discussing resource recovery, but scratching the surface. And what I expect to do with you today is to go a bit more in-depth. But that is for our deep dive. Right before, let's start with our good old traditions. And you're sending a postcard today from Mechelen. So what can you tell me about Mechelen, which I would ignore by now? Mechelen is a very uh, beautiful city in, in Flanders, in Belgium, between Brussels and, and Antwerp. It's an ancient city also, with a lot of uh, middle-age buildings. The people of Burgundy lived here and so on, so it's a very nice city. Very well located within Belgium, but also within the world. So we see Mechelen as our uh, headquarters uh, location, and we hope to make Mechelen even more famous uh, by uh, growing our company. So it is not only the place where you live, but it's also the headquarter of Inopsis. Yeah, that's true. How many people are you in Inopsis working in, in Mechelen? At this moment, we're 17. Part of the team is, is working in Mechelen. And a small part, the R&D, is also working in, in other facilities in Antwerp, in our R&D uh, facility laboratorium environment. Do you have a link with um, the famous university, the KU Leuven? Yes, yes. We are an official startup of the KU Leuven University. We teamed up with Professor De Will from the chemical department of KU Leuven. And uh, we founded together in 2015 Inopsis as a startup of the KU Leuven University. So I pronounce it pretty badly, but we've had several alumni from, I mean, it, it's a water hotspot. So several of the alumni went in various water ventures and I had the pleasure to interview some of them. 
But right before diving into what Inopsis does, I was looking at your path, and um, I could say that you have kind of the typical industrial path. It's not like you've been going a bit into the utility world or doing something totally different, or from what it sounds like, you're really a specialist of the industrial world. So what brought you to that part of the market? Good question. To be honest, when I when I started my career, I never thought I would be active in, in water treatment or in, or in waste handling. So I started at uh, Bayer as a process engineer with my chemical engineering background. Then I shifted to BASF, another chemical multinational German company. Also, again, process engineering and then production. And then at my age of 30, I thought, okay, is it this? Huh? Will I continue until retirement working for a big chemical company or do I want to do other things in my life? So at that moment, I decided to leave BASF. What I really liked working at BASF, but I thought I have to make now this decision to do something else. I've been working then in steel industry for ArcelorMittal, paper and coating, uh, Mondi, then also in fast-moving consumer goods, ABMF, the brewery. And then at a certain moment, the circle was round again, was closed, and I entered again in the, in the world of the, of the chemical development and the chemical industry. I would see a red thread now that you explain all of that. And the red thread sounds to me that all these industries have in common that they have quite challenging wastewaters. Is it a coincidence that you end up with inopsis or is that red thread linked to it? I think, yes, at a certain moment, I, I didn't see perhaps the link, but yes, I've seen a lot of things in chemical industry. Water was becoming more and more important. Water pinch and, and other things and water recuperation was already a hot topic in, in the beginnings of 2000. In a brewery also, eh, water consumption and pressurized air are the two major drivers in the production area to decrease the costs and to increase the sustainability. But for me, the really trigger was getting to understand that hazardous waste streams, hazardous waste waters, even with very low concentrations of toxic, non-biodegradable or persistent components, were transported and incinerated. And this was something that I thought, okay, we're living in 2010, 2012 at that moment, we're still driving around with, with waste streams and we're putting them in an incinerator. We should be able to do something else with it. You mentioned decrease the cost and increase the sustainability. Is that your elevator pitch to Inopsis? Yeah, at that moment also, 2010-12, entrepreneurial things were very important. Everybody was talking about entrepreneurship. Everybody was talking about sustainability. Everybody was also talking about circular economy. And I saw a lot of people talking about it, but I didn't see really the big steps. So at that moment, I, I thought, yeah, stop talking about it and, and do it yourself. So I, I, I was really convinced that circularity, sustainability, and entrepreneurship could be something that was very important and could also change and drive our economy. And to prove this, I thought, yeah, let's do it myself. Uh, let's start uh, a company. Let's prove that you can do something with these topics and that you can make a difference. Actually, you know, you're touching on it right now. Sustainability and circular economy are ambitious targets and probably really goals for, for an entire industry. But on the other hand, they also are maybe sometimes buzzwords, you know. Every single company nowadays is saying they are sustainable. The full question is to which extent. So we'll go into that in the deep dive. But but just right before, you know, usually when I'm preparing for this kind of, of, of interviews, I'm watching a bit what's written on the website of the company. And most of the time it's written, you know, we do this and that to SDG 6. And I'm not underplaying that. If you're really having an impact on SDG 6, it's already something 
enormous and you might be proud of it. But you are going the extra mile because you have six different sustainable development goals on your website where you explain how you're supporting and leading the charge there. So how do you measure your impact on all of those? Good question. Yes, I think we, from the beginning when we founded the company, it was our, our, our aim or our goal to impact several of the sustainable development goals and not just pick one out, but to to create a company that would be active in the different fields. How do you measure it? That's a good question. I think we do a lot of things. For example, if you look at um, wastewater treatment, we go quite specific into ecotoxicology, for example. If we talk about CO2, for every project we do, we do a footprint, a CO2 footprint calculation. So we try to benchmark with the existing solution, which improvement do we bring to the customer in CO2 footprint decrease. And as a small company, it's not so easy to measure everything and to monitor everything. We don't have big teams or a lot of money also to hire consultants to do this. So this is uh, still work in progress, but it's a good question and it's definitely very important. And, and we are focusing on that, on how can we how can we do the measurement, how can we do the calculation, and how can we prove that we're doing the right things? Okay, I take CO2 footprint and I take ecotoxicology and I put them in the fridge because I'm coming back to those questions when we, we discuss one of your real projects because I, I'd like to, to follow up on both of those. But before, to get a bit of context, you mentioned that you were shocked to see that incineration is still the way to treat difficult streams in some particular industries. Which streams do we send to incineration and which of them do we intend to replace? Shocked, yes, but also disappointed and how to say it, thinking on why does nobody question this? We have been doing this since the years 80 and, and again at that moment it was the right uh, approach. Eh? The alternative was discharging toxic streams. Eh? And what kind of streams are we talking here? I come to your, your question and the answer. Yeah, streams containing toxic organics, pesticides, uh, herbicides, uh, amine-based components, uh, streams containing heavy metals, uh, streams containing active pharmaceutical ingredients uh, coming from cleaning in place in, in, in pharmaceutical production, streams with a high AOX uh, concentration and so on. And yes, these are considered hazardous, but in some cases it's just PPMs or PPB of a certain problem-causing component in a big matrix of water. And we're not just transporting and incinerating. Another example is we're bringing water, waste streams from Ireland via truck and boat to Antwerp to get it incinerated. And then in times where we say, okay, traffic jams, uh, CO2, transportation, circular economy, if, if you then see these kind of cases, then you think this is not what you have to do. It's all about creating the paradigm shift, questioning things, but of course, giving critics and saying this is not the right approach is one thing, but you also have to come up with solutions. And this is what we try to do. Yes, these streams are hazardous. Yes, they contain toxic components. Yes, transport and incineration is a solution. But yes, there are at this moment also technologies, solutions to compensate it and to provide an alternative. And this is what we want to do as, as a company, show to those customers, to those governments that you can do something else and it can be also uh, economically feasible. But now if I'm trying to be the devil's advocate, if I'm an industrial player, nowadays what I do is I take my stream, which is much better as you said that in the 80s, I put it in a truck and it got incinerated. It could also be sent to Mars. At the end of the day, I don't really care because to me, I'm paying for something and my problem is sorted. So 
what is your best argument and best foot in the door to convince me as an industrial player that there's a better way? To be honest, and, and it's a little bit provocative, but sometimes I start my presentation with nobody is paying for sustainability. And then people look very shocked around the table. And then I say, but also look at your situation at home. If we can have something that is cheaper, we will do. And we all talk about sustainability, but nobody also at home is implementing all sustainable solutions yeah? because they're quite expensive. So the first thing we try to do is to prove that our alternative is even cheaper than going for transport and incineration. And yes, it's also sustainable. Most of the cases, we start with the business case. What I see with um, multinational companies, pharmaceutical and, and even chemical companies, once we're in and we have proven that there is an alternative, the discussion about cost decrease fades away and they come back with other challenging streams or other problems. And the discussion is more, okay, if it's at the same price level as what we do now in transport translation, we're still willing to consider your solution. What I saw the last five years is that the sustainable goals and being a sustainable company and having KPIs in, in hazardous waste reduction and CO2 footprint reduction are very, very important. And a lot of companies don't have the choice anymore. The shareholders, uh, the market is demanding this. So you see a lot of these KPIs popping up in, in site management and even in, in operations management objectives to do something. So it's not only talking about it anymore, they really have to do something. So these companies are searching for solutions and alternatives. So the momentum is there, the paradigm shift is coming, and now it is the time to implement these kind of concepts. And what you see is that they're becoming more and more interesting also from a financial point of view. Also, the COVID situation helped us very hard. Uh, supply chain was broken. Uh, raw materials were not delivered. So if you want to tackle this, or you have to start producing in your own region, or you have to focus more and more on circularity. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Let me just restart from, from what you said at the beginning with this economic aspect of things. You know, on that microphone, I was discussing with Claudia Winkler and Ali Schmidt, who wrote a book called um, The Sustainability Puzzle. And in their book, they explain how sustainability or sustainable development, which we know is this triple bottom, we know it as the triple bottom, but in most of the cases, it's a Mickey Mouse thinking. You have the big head of the Mickey, which is the economic part, and then you have the ears of the Mickey, which is the environment and the, the societal aspect. So that means that even though minds are moving and shifting, it's still quite entrenched that the first argument has to be economical. My question there is, you mentioned the shift of paradigm is arriving, and there are lots of external drivers which push that. But can it happen with the invisible hand of markets? Or does it need at some point regulations to come into force? The companies in chemical industry and pharmaceutical industry, I think their regulation is not the main driver anymore. Most of them, the ones that I know, the, the big ones in Western Europe, they're all compliant with environmental regulation. But for example, if we talk about the topic of PI, pharmaceuticals in the environment, uh, still, if they are compliant, they know that even with a very well-functioning uh, wastewater treatment, they are still emitting in the effluent very low concentrations of pharmaceuticals, compliant according to law. But they know that Europe and law will focus on this and, and will change and will come up with lower discharge concentrations, uh, PNEC and lower predicted no-effect concentration. So these companies are aware 
And they say, okay, it will come within a few years. And the fact that we know that we're already causing this problem, we want to do something. So this is a shift that I see within these industries. Then you, of course, have other industries, textile, uh, hospital waste, water, and so on. Yeah, there it's a bigger challenge. They are very in a very competitive environment. They don't have the budgets and the means and the possibility to implement the most sustainable techniques because then they get a competitive disadvantage. So I understand that. And their regulation will have to push and help because you have to create a level playing field for, for all competitors in that market, textile, hospitals, tank cleaning, and so on. So you have different speeds and different focus points depending on the type of industry. So there's this problem which is solved in a certain way today, which might not be sustainable in the future. And I'm still this industrial player. And now you convince me that I have to do things differently. What is your offer to do things differently? Most of the cases I ask the, the possible customer or the existing customer, give me your top three or top five of most challenging hazardous waste streams. The ones that, that have a big volume, a high cost, or, or, or causing troubles with discharge limits or or sustainability. And they are quite reluctant to do this because they say, yeah, but these are the difficult ones. And we looked already at these ones and, and even universities did some studies on it. And, and the only approach, the best solution is transport and incineration. And then I say challenges. And then at the end, we get samples, wastewater samples, and we start in our R&D department and we do some screenings and some testing based upon now more than 10 years of experience out of university and also uh, during the time that we founded Inopsis. And then in most of the cases, we find a solution, technical, chemical-wise. But also the business case seems to be quite interesting because yeah, transport and incineration is, is an increasing cost. We talk about two, three, four to 800 euros per ton and that companies pay to get rid of their waste water or water solvent mixtures and to end up in transport and incineration. Incinerator capacity is full. No new incinerators are built. So you know the prices will, will go up and then also their regulation will yeah, put on taxes on this to create more sustainability. So there is, in, in a lot of these cases, there is a technical solution and there is also an economical benefit of stepping away and doing it on site like we do. You mentioned tons because we are talking of a waste, but if we translate that into cubic meter, because at the end of the day, it's, it's water. So just to underline what you just said, which is impressive, 200 to 800 euro per cubic meter of wastewater to treat, which I guess gives you some room to find the treatment. So you're bringing the sample to the lab and then you find a treatment train, but on which technologies are you drawing? Is it like you, you look at the full market and then you pick and choose? Or do you have proprietary solutions? We have our own solutions, but we're also part of a system integrator. If you, if you see what kind of streams we tackle, um, just polishing is not enough. Eh? Just doing disinfection, uh, just doing some activated carbon at the end, it's not enough. We really get streams that we call a little bit of a soup. Eh? If it comes out of, of a pharmaceutical production, it's really a mixture of, of a lot of things, additives, sugars, surfactants, metals, solvents, active components in very low concentrations. So this is not water. Eh? This, is, this contains water, but it looks a little bit like a soup. Unfortunately, there's not one technology able to treat this. Eh? We always screen the markets, you know, uh, the technology is available. And every technology has its benefits, but also uh, disadvantages. Eh? They just take membranes. Uh, membranes are a fantastic technology, but one of the disadvantages is folding. So if your membrane starts folding, yeah, 
then then it stops and you don't have a solution. So we as a company, we believe in a combination of technologies, technologies that we develop ourselves or that we that we take out of the market, and also technologies that are provided by by partners of us. For example, we 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 really focus on advanced oxidation technology, quite known technology within uh, water treatment, biological water treatment and polishing. But we implement it at streams where nobody really thought about implementing this due to the complexity. And we combine this advanced oxidation technology with other technologies. So in most of our solutions, it's a three or four technology train solution that we implement. So it becomes quite complex. Most of the cases, it's also ATEX, explosion proof, and due to the fact that we also use, for example, solvents, or we create an ATEX environment, or we are put into the ATEX environment of the customer. So it's dangerous, it's complex, and in that sense, we step a little bit out of the red ocean of the traditional waste water treatment companies that do very, very fantastic things, but sometimes say, hey, Inopsis, you're quite stupid and you don't know what you're doing. It's, it's quite difficult what you're doing. And then we say, no, this is what we like. That's exactly what I was going to say, you know. I've been in that position of, of going to industrial customers which have to treat difficult wastewaters, but I wasn't working for a specialized company. And as soon as we ticked one of the box you mentioned, like it can be ATEX, it can be a complex train, limited footprint, all of this, if you had only one, it would be a no-go. And we say, okay, someone is going to do that. So I can figure that that places you in a special position in that market. Yeah, and there sometimes the discussion is, is it brave and visionary or is it just stupid? <laughs> and there, to be honest, there's a thin line between both of them. And the question is on which side of the line are you? But we, we definitely have chosen not to be in the red ocean. There are a lot of good colleagues in the market that can do a lot of what we call more standard things, uh, the wastewater treatment plants, um, reverse osmosis, all those things There are very good players in, in the market. And if we need it, we team up with them. We really want to focus on being disruptive and bringing something in the market that is an alternative, again, for the transport and incineration. And there is not a lot of other possibilities or companies working on this, despite the bigger ones that have their focus on this business model. So we, we bring technology, but also a business model to give the customers the possibility to step away from the only alternative that there was, transport and incineration, for these hazardous waste streams. Actually, business model was going to be my smooth transition. Thanks for helping me, because usually that's the next box which you tick, which would be very difficult for another player because you invented a term. I had to write it down because honestly, I couldn't just remember it. So it's DBFOM. So design, build, finance, operate, maintain. How do you come up with that? We didn't really invent it, but I think we're the one, Yeah, there are not a lot of, lot of companies using this because most of them use some of the letters. We really believe in, in, the, in the full Monty, eh? so we, we design in research and development, the solution. We build it, part we do ourselves, but uh, for a lot of things, we, we team up with specialized companies and they were quite lucky. They were situated in Flanders, next to the harbor of Antwerp, one of the second biggest chemical clusters in the world. So all the expertise, knowledge, infrastructure is here present to help us to build this kind of units. The financing part is perhaps the most challenging part as a small startup company. So we we finance, so it's, we call it CAPEX-free. Customer doesn't have to invest in the solution. It remains an OPEX for the customer. So in that sense, we are competitive with the existing model of transport and incineration as an OPEX. But we have to pre-finance the, the full installation. And we're talking here uh, about an, an investment of yeah, 600,000 to three, four, five million sometimes for the project. 
um, that we operate, fully remote controlled. Let me just go back to, to the finance. Is there a minimum engagement as a customer? How long do they have to contract you? Yeah. The engagement that we ask is a minimum volume per year. Yeah, because if you talk with, with, uh, with possible customers, they talk about big volumes of waste streams. Yeah, and if you make your business model on these predictions or, or estimates and at the end it is not the case, then yeah, our return on investment is gone. So we, we agree with the customer a minimum volume that should be delivered. And if it's not delivered, okay, fine, then it, it will be charged. And we also try to focus on a certain time period, but they were quite flexible. And, and this is part of our business model. We believe in the mobile units. Why? First of all, we are the owner, we remain the owner, and at the end of the contract, we take it back and we reuse it. But it also gives the customer the possibility to say, okay, I'm, I'm in a pharmaceutical environment. Uh, the development of a pharmaceutical compound takes 15 years eh, with all the approvals, but the lifetime in production is sometimes two, three years because compet competition is also developing for these diseases alternative medicines. So after three years, it can be that the medicine is not produced anymore, that we don't have the wastewater stream anymore, and that we don't need the unit anymore. Uh, and for them, it's difficult to have then a return on investment on an environmental project. For us, it's, it's more easy. We say, okay, we have a contract for three years. You can prolong, but after three years, if it stops, we take back the unit and we reuse the full unit or we use the modules within the unit for a new unit for another customer. And in this sense, we create via this business model a very interesting concept for these companies, and we try to take away all the doubts, the risks, to go for this more circular, sustainable solution. So yeah, actually, I cut you off in the middle of your explanation, but you were explaining the various steps of your DBFOM model. So design is something you do in-house. Build is something you do with partners. You have this financing part, which is CapEx-free, and you explain how, how all of that works. And you were about to explain how you operate Yeah, so we like to do the operation ourselves because the installations that we built are quite complex. Most of customers also prefer that we do that. And of course, it's costly eh, to have people doing the operation. So we focus on remote controlled units and we also focus on having engineers uh, taking care of multiple units in a certain area or cluster. So this is why we like certain clusters in, in the world where you have multiple chemical and pharmaceutical companies nearby where we can have one engineer taking care of multiple units via remote control, but really taking care uh, so that the customer doesn't have to put operational people on to this project. We unburden, uh, so it's a, it's a full service that we give in that sense. Does that mean that you have engagement of no downtime or this kind of stuff? Yes, 24-7. You're working for production sites in, in chemical and pharmaceutical area, and yeah, They don't like to, uh, to shut down a part of the production or a full unit. So we really have to focus on reliability and also on, on quality. And we have in the contract stipulated uh, many clauses to be sure that this is also taken care of. And you said that you're doing a lot of remote monitoring. How much of your plants can be automated and, and run by themselves? All of them. All of them can run by themselves. On top of that, yeah, you're also working in risky and dangerous environments. So also there, the necessary safety, automation, measurements, and redundancy has to be implemented to be sure that you can do this. So that was for the O, and what about the maintenance? Yeah, also that, we do everything. So we do a predictive 
maintenance, we do um, troubleshooting. So everything is in our hands. So the customer, I will say the customer only has to give us the connection with the wastewater or the side stream pipe and some utilities and all the rest we do. So the operation, the maintenance, the supply of chemicals if needed, the recovery of raw materials and, and the handling and the shipping, everything is in our hands. If the customer allows us, we, we take care. So that means that as a customer, it's really a one-to-one replacement of my incineration streams. I just pay for something. I have the same level of guarantees and uh, it's more sustainable. And as you explain, it's also cheaper. Sounds like a win-win-win. Yeah, but it's I always also compare it a little bit. It's allowing also somebody in your kitchen. You can do a takeaway, but I also can uh, come home in your kitchen and, and cook you something. You should allow me to be in your kitchen and you should trust me. So in transport and incineration, you fill a truck and it's it's brought to another location and you get rid of it. Here you have to allow our people, our units on your side. You have some interactions, you have some risks also, and you have yeah you need to trust. So it's it's mainly for people in in production and supply chain a little bit of a paradigm shift. But once they see from the engineering part to the full implementation and when when we're there, what we do, yeah the trust is there and there they say okay your engineering standards and, and your safety standards are even higher than ours, then you get really the recognition. But in the beginning it, you need to build up the trust with with the customer and the site to be able to do what we do. You mentioned that you're a startup, so I guess that's at the beginning, it must be quite hard to get this this trust. So how do you breach this first wall of reluctance by saying, you know, when it's in a truck, we're good to go? Like most of the startups, I think you need some luck. And, and we were lucky by finding some brave people within Janssen Pharmaceutica, our first customer, a part of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, where we had many discussions in the beginning on the treatment of certain side streams. And then at a certain moment, yeah, you come to the point that you want to sign a contract and that you start with the implementation of what was for us our first unit ever in the market. And then you need some brave people within those multinational companies that say, just do it. We can discuss and we, we have some doubt, but let us just do it. Huh? And we'll see what comes out. And then with this success, you can go, can go to other companies and say, look, we already did it there. The customer is quite happy. You can talk with them. It's going well. So you need the first two, three successes to build up your credibility within a certain company, but also within a market. So that took us four or five years, to be honest, to come to that point. Nobody wants to be the first one. So you need to find the one that is brave enough to do the first step. And again, we were very lucky with, with Janssen Pharmaceutica. That is a quite innovative company focusing on sustainability that said, okay, let's go. Let's do this together. We've been discussing the, the treatment so far and how you replace one-to-one the existing. But there is a second stream in what you're doing. It's this circular aspect. So which kind of resource do you recover? And if you have to rank them, I know it's, it's quite difficult to do. Maybe it doesn't make sense, you'll tell me. But if you have to rank them, what is the, the order of priority of those resources? To be honest, for me, water. But we're not yet there. And when we made the business plan for, for Enopsis in 2013-14, we uh, stated in our business plan, we will never do metal recovery. And the first unit we have built was a unit to recover metals out of uh, wastewater. Why? Why didn't you want to make metal recovery? 
Because we were quite experienced in organics, toxic organics, and because we really believed in technologies like advanced oxidation to do the treatment of these hazardous streams and to make them biodegradable and digestible. Uh, and then you start discussing with, with companies and, and you tackle those issues and you look at these kind of side streams, but then suddenly a certain stream pops up. And can you also take a look at this stream? It's it's really an, an important stream for us. It's a big volume. It costs us a lot of money. We should do something. And then you say, okay, yeah, we can take a look at it. And we found a solution for it. And then the customer said, yeah, I want this. And at that moment, it became a priority. So we implemented this solution. It has now been up and running for five years very successfully. And there, for me, the first focus was take out the metal. It's, it's in this case, zinc. It's a heavy metal. And so you don't want to discharge this. I know why. Because... I tried it at home when I was a young boy. I had some uh, algae in my uh, in my aquarium, and uh, I want to get rid of them. And I, I read in a book that a little bit of uh, zinc oxide could help, and I was quite impatient. So I thought I'd do a little bit more, and okay, it worked, eh? despite the fish. But so I know it's a toxic metal. So we, we, we developed a solution to take the metal out. And then the customer said, yeah, okay, that's good, that's good. You don't have to go to transport and insulation and warm it to water. Ah, but it would be also nice to recuperate the material. Okay, so then we teamed up with uh, with a company like Nearstar, and, and we said, hey guys, um, we can provide you zinc. You're a zinc producer, so it seems quite simple. Eh? Everybody wants to do circular economy. Eh? Are you in? Yeah, yeah, we're in. How much are you going to bring? I said, you have around 100 ton. 100 ton a day, no a year. And then they said to me, yeah, but do you know how much raw material we convert every year? Millions of, of tons. And you want us to take in 100 ton a year? I said, yes, please. Uh, and it was a difficult discussion. But also there again, uh, at a certain moment, some brave people there said, okay, we also want to focus on circularity. And if we don't start small, we never start. So let's do it. So we created a, a full solution where we take out the heavy metal. The water is now not toxic anymore and can be discharged or reused. So it's it's out of transport and incineration. And the raw material, one-on-one, we even did the reach registration and we became part of a zinc producing consortium like you have to do in chemical industry, is a raw material for, for another company. And this was for us and for the customer really the trigger to say, look, we can step away from a linear destruction process with the same stream into a full circular process and even creating value, decrease of cost in waste handling and recuperating a raw material like zinc. And then after that, we did palladium. And of course, palladium is even more interesting because at a certain moment, it had a value higher than gold, 70, 80,000 euros a kilogram. So even if you have PPMs of palladium in a, in a side stream in a wastewater and you can take it out for 95%, you create a lot of value. And then it's a no-brainer, eh? decrease of uh, waste handling costs and getting back a substantial amount uh, in kilograms and in euros of raw material that otherwise have to, has to come from Russia out of mining. So these were the, the first examples that we implemented with success where customer sets and, and also new companies uh, look at and say, okay, um, it seems to be possible. I was discussing on that microphone with uh, Henrik Hagemann about his technology to remove PFAS. And he was saying that to him, the next frontier would be to recover PFAS. Is it something you're looking into? I'm glad that you mentioned PFAS because here in Flanders, in Belgium, we have some issues with PFAS. Um, I think a lot of countries have the issue, but in, in Flanders, it's really um, a hot topic due to certain um, circumstances and, and some, some uh, discharge uh, problems we had. 
we're even looking with some of our customers to recuperate uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients. Why? Because they have a value. Definitely in development of pharmaceuticals, the first grams and kilograms are very, very expensive. They get lost in different steps of the production, of of the scaling up and in the cleaning in place. Yes, you could also consider recuperating PFAS, but there we have to be honest, if you're talking about PFAS, we're talking about 6,000 different chemical structures. So what we see, because we also focus very hard in our development on all kinds of micropollutants, APIs is already developed. There we can do a lot. So we do specific API removals and we do mixtures of API removal. Then we started focusing on endocrine disrupting chemical compounds. And of course, a type of endocrine disrupting chemical compounds is the PFAS. But there you have a mixture of more than 6,000. And what we see in groundwater and in industrial waters, you get a mixture of multiple PFAS compounds. You have the long chain and the C4 and, and longer organic compounds and you have the short chain. So first challenge I think for the coming 10 years is purifying soil, water and industrial streams and taking out the PFAS and avoiding it that it gets into the environment and also into the human body. I see quite faster a purification and recuperation of pharmaceuticals at a certain moment. But there you will see then again the problem of acceptance, uh, approval, and so on. And I think in the future also the recuperation and the reuse of certain PFAS compounds could be considered, but the first challenge will be taking them out because the existing technologies take out part of the PFAS, not the short chain, and shift the problem. So if you do ground uh, remediation, ground cleaning, yeah, you clean the ground with water, but what do you do with the water? Yeah, we, we use activated carbon, but also there you, you don't capture all the PFAS that is in the water. Yeah? The water is discharged into the surface water. And so we're a little bit shifting the problem from one side to the other with PFAS. And what we're doing is focusing on a permanent solution where you take out all the PFAS. On the short term, you do destruction via incineration of a small amount. And on the long term, you do recuperation or in-situ destruction. Is it part of your mid-term or long-term planning to be expanding outside of the industrial world? Or you find your your sweet spot and that's there and you will stay there? I think a lot of the things that we implement and a lot of the challenges we see with pharmaceuticals, toxic organics, heavy metals, and so on, uh, you also see in municipal wastewater treatment. Huh? That was the reason why I was asking, yeah. I think everybody knows that, that wastewater treatment is one of the best technologies you can, you can have, but that in the effluent, you always will have micropollutants. And you, you reach a maximum with your bacterial-based technology. You can boost it with some oxygen or ozone, but at the end, the effluent will never be clean, clean, clean. So I think what we do, I always say we're a little bit in the Formula One. We're implementing high-end, on a niche scale, certain technologies and solutions, but this can be used municipal and perhaps in the longer term at home in a kind of decentral at-home wastewater treatment recuperation installation. I like the analogy, actually. It makes makes a lot of sense. We mentioned the heavy metals, which you intended not to recover and which ended up being the first one. We've discussed PFAS. And you said that your specialty at the beginning was this organics and taking out the organics out of the water. How is that today? And what do you do about that? And my question in the question is that that might be an opportunity for an energy stream. Is it also something you're looking into? What do you mean with an energy stream? Well, I'm thinking of, you know, if you go into food and beverage with um, with highly 
sugar water, high strength water, which are hard to treat, but on the other end, which are full of, of BOD, COD, which you might be transforming at some point into biomass and bioenergy. Is it a part of the resource recovery circle which you're looking at, or is it maybe too easy for a specialized company like you? Too easy not. Um, I think what we try to do is, unlike the, what you mentioned with the COD, what we often see is that we get side streams or, or wastewater streams with a high uh, COD. The problem is not the COD as such. The COD can be treated and, and reduced in a biological wastewater treatment plant. The problem is the, the small amount of the low concentration of the toxic organics or the non-biodegradable part or the persistent ones that just go through, and like hormonal components. They don't kill the bacteria, but they just go through the, the biological wastewater treatment plant. So what we try to do in our solutions is to decrease the concentration of the problem-causing components, but not to decrease the COD. What you see with other technologies, for example, electro-oxidation, you can do. Yeah? You decrease everything. You decrease the total COD, and hopefully you also decrease the concentration of the problem-causing components. But from my point of view, you consume a lot of energy to do something that you don't have to do, because if the water is treated properly, the problem-causing components are out and the COD is still high, the municipal or the industrial wastewater treatment, that is most of the cases there, can do its job and also needs this as a kind of feed. Otherwise, they have to add sugars or alcohols to keep the thing alive. So what we try to do is to be very selective in the removal and not to do the total demineralization because it consumes a lot of energy and at the end you're doing a kind of incineration but then in the water and this is what you try to avoid it's a discussion we we had sometimes on that microphone between zero liquid discharge minimum liquid discharge and finding the the point where up to which it is it makes sense to treat and upon which it makes sense to pass them to the next one and to the traditional plan so yeah that, that makes a lot of sense there i think the opinion is depending on who you're talking with or two. Some people have developed certain technology and I understand they want to sell it. But I think the proper approach is the combination of the technologies. So you can say, okay, my technology is better than biological wastewater treatment, but no, it's, it's, it should be part of the train. So there is not one technology solving this. And at the end you're doing again incineration or <laughs> in an incinerator or underwater via electro-oxidation or plasma, but then you're destroying everything. So we believe in existing technologies and new technologies, but in the combination and bringing all those technologies together, like a roulette team, we always say, or an estafette team, depending on the language, make them work together and use the benefits and the advantages of each technology and the train will solve. So there is not one technology solving the issue, unfortunately, and I, I don't see it coming also. Or it consumes a lot of energy or it needs a lot of capex. Yeah. And this is not efficient. It's the good old saying, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail and then you're trying to use your technology for everything. The fact that you're on this system integrator level gives you the magnitude to play a bit around and to find the best team. So I guess that you're agnostic to that extent. Yeah, true. Last question for me in that deep dive uh, about Inopsis. How global are you today? Uh, we're not so global as we wanted to be, but it's part of the plan. So we started in the Benelux with some implementations. We're now focusing uh, more and more on, on Switzerland, for example. We open our office in Basel. Uh, we're focusing on Ireland. Um, so you're, you're following the pharma. <laughs> yes, we're following the pharma and the chemical companies in Britain and Western Europe. And it goes uh, indeed from Ireland over the Benelux to uh, Germany, Switzerland, and then also the, the Nordics. So this is the area we want to be active. 
Therefore, also the participation of Air Liquide in our shareholder structure last year is also very important. First of all, they bring you know, the access to the industrial gases that we need, for example, in advanced oxidation. They also bring us engineering expertise in the development of these solutions. And of course, they have already local teams in many countries. And this can help us to boost also our activities there by teaming up with them with their existing people and offices in, in these countries. They might bring some scars as well. <laughs> <laughs> when I started working in the water industry, I was working for a company which used to be halfly owned by Air Liquide. And Elikid was bringing this concept of industrial wastewater treatment somehow as a service. They were selling it over the fence. So they were bringing some equipment on site and they were selling the, the treatment material as a service. So they were not treating the water. but the, And when I started there, they had a legacy of those plants, but the other 50% of the shareholder was, was De Grémont, so Suez. And that was competing philosophies inside the company, like if you are really schizophrenic. So I have to say those plants didn't, end up well, but probably if you're into a, a fully similar business approach where you're saying, uh, I'm doing DBFOM and uh, treatment as a service, then it makes much more sense because that's really aligned with uh, the business model of a gas provider. It, it makes sense and, and we are the owner and we decide who we team up with. So yeah, they are a supplier for us. So in that sense, we decide on the technology, the approach for every project. And of course, if we need them, the industrial gas, they are our preferred supplier. So in that sense, they don't influence a lot the decisions and they also don't make things more complicated than it should be. And so in, in that sense, it's a, good, it's a good manage, I would say. What is your outlook for Inopsis? If you look in my crystal ball and you're looking at Inopsis in five years or in 10 years, what do you want to achieve? Ah, good question. Um, we would like to be a very important partner for the top 20 pharma and chemical companies, at least in Western Europe. But also there, we, we already see that companies that are quite happy with our service, they also want to team up with us in other areas of the world. Eh? So they, they also say, but we have the same kind of production unit in the States or in Asia. Can you also uh, do it there? So first of all, focus on Western Europe and uh, the major chemical pharmaceutical producers and then the North Americas and perhaps Asia, but Asia will be the, I assume the last region that we will tackle. So the first five years, Europe and a little bit of, of, the, of the US, Canada, uh, that's already something if we could uh, achieve that. You say very good partner. Do you have a metrics for that? That's a good question. Um, very good question. I always believed in, in my career in win-win. And problem is, if you talk with a lot of people, they all say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the end, it also takes some courage and yeah, trust to come to a win-win. So I think a good partner is somebody that, together with you, really wants to achieve a win-win from both sides. And sometimes that's difficult to find. I said it was my last question. I lied. Uh, <laughs> one more. What about the carbon agenda? Is it something which at some point is coming into your discussions? Because if you are taking your streams, putting it in a truck and sending it for incineration, it has an impact. If you're able to do everything on-premise and having a circular loop and reusing and, and recovering resources, I would imagine that you are close to zero. You probably still have energy that you put in your plant, but which you might be compensating with the resources that you're recovering. Is it part of what you're looking at? In German, they would say yein. Now I would say yes. Why? 
it was not the first point we focused on five, six years ago. Again, we, we focused on, on having an economical reality that was more interesting than the competition. But at the end, and that's why we want to focus now more and more on the calculation for every project, the CO2 footprint calculation, it perhaps will be the most important KPI. The cost reduction or the ecotoxicology perhaps is important, but I think a lot of companies are now struggling with how can we decrease uh, 50% of our CO2 footprint. And of course, they they, they focus on their own uh, production, their own supply chain, but at a certain moment, they, they need their suppliers or they need partners to help them. So I think the CO2 decrease that we can create with every of our projects could be perhaps the most important KPI to decide on. I think this will evolve quite quickly the coming two, three years. Well, it sounds like a prediction I would like to see coming true. So <laughs> I think that makes for a perfect conclusion for this deep dive. Thanks a lot, Stephen. It was really, really, really interesting as an understatement. I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in this last section, I'm raising you short questions, which you can answer with short answers, and you'll see that I'm the one sidetracking. So my first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? One of the last projects we did was the removal of uh, more than 23 different APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients, out of a formulation side stream coming from one of the major formulation sites in Europe. Uh, so this was really a very challenging and interesting project. We already did streams with one or two APIs, but here you have to do 23, all in their maximum concentration, and all should be lower than the predicted no-effect concentration. So we're talking about PPB and PPT, or in the 0000, the Contador uh, region. Uh, so this is really a an, an challenging project, and a project where we're very proud that we were able to do this. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? That as a startup, I think more in Europe than in the States, and especially as a startup in, in sustainability, that every round you do, you ask uh, not enough money. You always think with one or two million, I will survive. And then when the, the round is finalized and the money is on the on the bank account, you you understand and think, shit, I had to ask for. Because everything goes slower and more difficult than, for example, in the IT or in the application world. So, yeah, next time we go for a capital round, I think we will try to raise more. Which round will it be? We already did three. So I think we will do a final round and then perhaps an IPO. Um, so there's one round again of around 10 million, I think, coming up to grow within Europe. And then the next step could be an IPO. Is there something you are doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? And usually when I'm talking with startup funders to do the transition with what we discussed just before, they say fundraising. <laughs> yeah, fundraising is time consuming. <laughs> but at a certain, you know, I, I, I liked it. Um, I think I'm too operational at this moment, still too operational. And I should be focusing more on the strategy. But I think this is a challenge for every founder. You're doing everything yourself in the beginning. Then you have to delegate more and more. But at a certain moment, you really have to start working more on a strategical level. But it's a challenge. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Good question. Um, I think the access and availability of safe water is 
a very important trend. We have been talking about this already several years, but I think it will be very challenging. And I think we will be surprised in certain regions how important it will be. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? I think the focus should be that everybody worldwide can have access to safe and, and clean water. And in Western Europe, for us, it's, it's normal, but I think there are a lot of regions where it's not. And this should be a basic human right, the access to safe and clean water, uh, drinking water, but also water to, to grow vegetables and so on. So it's one of the raw materials that we have the most, eh? and still people don't have access to it. You mentioned when we were discussing a bit before the recording that you know Jacob Bossar, who was on, on, on that microphone some weeks ago, And uh, he was explaining how Flanders has a portion of it, which is more water scarce than some parts of the Siren Desert. So yeah, even in, in Europe, where we have water everywhere, this access to water is going to be a challenge. I'm, I'm a bit hitting an open door, but... <laughs> Last question. Would you have someone to recommend me to invite on that same microphone? Yeah, sustainability rated, um, Stefan Wildeman. Before Plastics. He, he won a quite important environmental price so they make bio-based plastics and the first application is started with was the trimming uh, wire you need for your grass eh? you have a, a device to trim your the sides of your your uh, grass eh, with a kind of plastic trimming wire and he, he, he thought oh this is stupid eh? because you you lose pieces of it every time you you use it and you have to then pull it and to make so and now he, i think he developed biodegradable fishing nets to avoid that um, turtles and other fish get, get stuck in it and, and die. And he won a few weeks ago a very important environmental prize. So Stefan Wildeman from B4 Plastics would be something if you say it doesn't have to be water related, but more sustainable. He's a very interesting guy to have a chat with, I think. Well, thanks a lot for the suggestion. To close that, if people want to follow up with you, where shall I redirect them? To the website inopsis.eu or on our LinkedIn page is also a lot of information to find and if they want they can try to contact me and uh, I would be very happy to, to have a discussion with them. As usually all the links are in the description. Well Stephen it's been a pleasure and yeah I'll be happy to, to follow up with your path to see if you became this um, very good partner and if you have a metric for that in, in five or ten years. Thank you. Thank you, Anton. It was a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for your very interesting questions. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.